What's up, Z-Pack? It's Dr. Z. Welcome to the Z-Dog MD Show. Today we have a returning guest whose return could not be more timely because Dr. Todd Strumwasser is a physician leader. He is in charge of running a bunch of hospitals in Northern California for dignity. And we have been speculating and talking about the economic damage to the healthcare system specifically of COVID-19, having you know lost elective procedures, what are we doing about PPE? How is it affecting nurses and doctors in these uh, hospitals? And so we thought, let's talk to someone who's actually having to solve these problems every day, who's a, again, a clinician and a leader. So Todd, welcome back to the show, man. Thank you so much. It's good to be back. Last time we were in Las Vegas. So welcome to the Bay Area. It's nice being back in the yay, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and this Zoom thing, I could get used to it because it's just, I'm I'm a misanthrope by nature. People don't know this about me. So having people at a, at a low bit rate and a high distance just makes me happy and puts a smile on my face. Good. Well, I'm glad. So you like me more like this in a virtual sense. <laughs> hey, every administrator is better at a far distance, man. <laughs> I walked hey, right into that. Keep yeah, it you know what? I, you set it up. You set it up. So, hey, <laughs> you know, we were, we've been talking since the beginning of this thing. And um, one, of the, one of the big challenges early on, of course, was the PPE component. And now it's even trans, trans – that's still a challenge. But we're starting to transition to – oh my gosh, these hospitals as a going economic entity are threatened by the shutdown, the consequences of coronavirus and all of that. Um, lead me into this. How are you guys handling all this? And we can get into PP. We can talk about all these things, but let's start right. with that. So, you know, first of all, let me just say that when this COVID thing happened, our priorities were um, to keep our hospitals open and to keep our patients and our caregivers all safe. So having that as a backdrop, we were willing to do almost anything we needed to do, including taking huge financial losses, which we've done just to provide the service we're supposed to set up. So in the month of March, which was really only half of a COVID month, because the, um, the public sequestering started in the middle of March, we lost as a company $150 million. Wow. So that's just half a month. We expect to lose a half a billion dollars for every month, probably up until this thing kind of, you know, result, uh, you know, gets better, which we don't know when it's going to happen. So, you know, we're losing this money primarily because we're still staffed to be running all of our operating rooms, all of our procedures, everything we normally do. But we stopped doing elective procedures in the middle of March. So that was that was the and you and I have talked about this. You know, elective surgery and elective procedures are the financial engine of any hospital. That's where we make the money to keep the lights on, the doors open. So that's why we're running at a big loss now. So we're now looking at being on the other side of the curve of the COVID uh, pandemic curve. And we're saying, is it safe to reopen the hospitals and start doing elective cases again? And the answer is a guarded yes. And so we are gradually in a phased manner reopening uh, the seven hospitals that I oversee. So is this a, and there's a lot here, right? Um, losing that much money every day. Uh, one question comes up immediately is, have you had to furlough or lay off or fire staff in order to mitigate that? You know, so there have, we have had people have been on PTO um, and administrators have taken PTO. You'll be happy to know administrators like myself have taken pay cuts. Um, we have had to furlough a few people, 
we really wanted to, at the beginning of this whole thing, redeploy people. So in other words, all the OR nurses that weren't being used in the operating rooms, we thought we could retrain them to work in the ICUs and the med surge units. It hasn't been that easy. You know, as you know, it takes a while to train people into these newer positions. So there have been a lot of, um, we have a lot of surplus labor uh, right now, which is causing our losses. Um, we are still keeping people on the payroll because we don't want them to go. We know the business will come back. We hope it will. But that, that's actually something else I want to talk about a little bit later is what mm. will business look about? What will business look like in the post-COVID era? I don't think it's going to look the same. So what do we need to be doing differently? I think there's a lot. So we'll get into that hopefully too a little bit later. Oh, a thousand percent, because this is a fundamental chance for change, which you and I have talked about, that if the engine of the economy of hospital systems is elective procedures, it's like a, you know, like sugar, right? You become very addicted to it, it releases dopamine and it keeps the lights on. Like you said, it allows you to do other work. We need to really think about how we're gonna change that if we're going to actually transform healthcare in the first place, because right now we're incentivized to do all these things to people. Now, one clarification, I think, and you know, this <laughs> the, the part of the issue was we were expecting a massive surge in COVID-19 patients that didn't come. So even repurposing OR staff, I mean it and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong. Even repurposing OR staff and all of that, and then thinking, okay, well, now we'll be able to staff up for this. It hasn't come yet because of, presumably because of the effectiveness of the lockdown in California. How, how has that affected your sort of projections? Because, you know, it's one thing to have right. the loss of elective stuff, but it's another thing to have no revenue. Right. So, you know, we're grateful that in the Bay Area, we have had very low impact of COVID. Um, I mean, like right now in my seven hospitals, we have 12 COVID positive patients. Los Angeles is a completely different story. They are mm. surging down there in a big way, uh, and as they are in New York City. So in some of these centers, we're still seeing um, a really um, grotesque numbers of patients dying and being hospitalized with COVID. Now, we, we tried to anticipate early on what the worst case scenario was, and my company nearly made some really bad decisions because we thought we were going to need to just double down on ventilators and ECMOs and all these things. It turns out we didn't really need that many ventilators for a variety of reasons. But we were about to buy a truckload of ventilators. Um, mm. So um, we didn't know if we were going to be looking like Italy or if we were going to be looking like Sweden. We weren't sure which version we were going to be getting. So we tried to prepare for the worst, and that was one of the beatings that we took financially. I'm glad that we were overprepared. Um, I would have preferred that than to have been underprepared. Uh, but nonetheless, we're still not sure this thing is going to be over. So my best guess, and you know, first thing I'll tell you, and anyone that you would listen to talking about COVID should say the following, I have no idea what's going to happen. If they don't say that, then they're Thank lying you. to you. A, th um, so a thousand percent. I, yeah. So I really don't know. I am worried that we're going to have a resurgence in the fall. Um, some people have been warning us about that. Um, we don't know what we're seeing. It's possible that when social distancing starts loosening up, we could see that. Um, so we can't um, drop our guard on this thing. We can't relax, really. Um, and furthermore, we could have other COVID-type illnesses coming up. I mean, it wouldn't be unlikely that this is not a one-time event. Um, so we've learned a lot from this initial COVID situation. Uh, we've learned that we need to stockpile PPE. We need to stockpile resources. Uh, we need to not outsource the manufacturing 
of PPE to China. I mean, that was a huge mistake we made decades ago. So when this, when COVID hit China and the manufacturers of the PPE were, were hit by this, we also lost our, our, we lost our stuff. So we can't be that reliant on other countries anymore. Yeah, it's a, it's a perfect storm of this thing. One thing that you mentioned early on is, it, so staff, human resources, right? And, and listen, I know already like in the comments, people are gonna bitch and moan that I have someone that isn't, uh, you know, that, that's an administrator. But the truth is this, is, this is the engine that actually pays you as a frontline clinician is the, is the clinical business of medicine that we've set up and we can criticize it and we can talk about transforming it which we have to do but until we actually understand how it works we're not going to understand our own role in it and one of these things that we need to understand new york times did an interesting piece about this healthcare you know 60 percent of healthcare costs or something is personnel right todd is it does that sound roughly right so that's exactly right that's exactly right so if 60 percent of our healthcare spending goes into jobs into paying people on the front lines and in within administration and all of that um, historically, healthcare has been a hedge against recession. It's been a recession-proof kind of deal. This is the first time that it is not showing that because of the unique perfect storm of cutting back elective procedures, people not going to the doctor, even for procedures they need that are emergent. We're seeing a 40% reduction or something in heart attack presentations. Like It's not like we're having 40% less heart, heart attack. So how is this sort of changing how you think about healthcare as as a business, Todd? Because it can be very anxiety provoking for those on the front lines. Yeah. So I mean, there's a couple of things that I would I would unpack. You know, one is, you know, why are we seeing fewer people in our ERs with chest pain? So you know, we you and I know that there are people who are staying at home with chest pain because they're afraid to come to the hospitals. They don't want to catch COVID. But you and I also know, and and Zubin, you as an internist know that. You know, there's so much stuff in the medical literature about whether or not having something, having a procedure like a stent placed in your heart versus um, conservative medical management, which is better. So we may be finding that all these, you know, stents and thrombolytics that we're doing may be doing no more uh, good for patients than just being on the drugs they're on and staying at home. That may be something that comes out of this. I would certainly anticipate that there will be less spine surgery done after COVID. And I'll tell you why. People are delaying these things and maybe a lot of them are getting better and saying, you know what, if I just do physical therapy and exercises, I don't need to have a disc discectomy or a fusion or whatever it is. And I don't mean to be picking on the spine surgeons, but I think as a country, we do too much to people and maybe doing less would be better. Maybe that's one of the lessons that will come out of COVID. <laughs> so. So I, not to interrupt, but this is the reason I like talking to you, Todd, because you're one of the few, you, it, it's it's really not in your best interest to say that because no. the well, engine, in yeah. the long term it will be, but right now it's kind of like, well, this, even if the spine surgeries are unnecessary, even if it turns out cats are not, and we've done shows about this with Rita Redberg and others saying, hey, we, what we do, and I've publicly speculated, Todd, that when we look at the data from this era, we'll see some people did lose their lives because they didn't come in, but the majority will actually have better outcomes uh, uh, akin to all the cardiologists going on vacation for a month and being inaccessible. So I'm curious what you think. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, you can think of, you know, you can think of the, all the variety of things that we do to people that we're not sure we're really helping them with. And then in the COVID world, we'll find out that maybe um, it's better not to do anything. 
But you know, the other thing that we've learned is all along we've talked about virtual visits and telehealth. Well, guess what? Now it's become the absolute necessary thing to do. So we're doing a lot more virtual visits. We don't need people to come into the ER. We don't need people to come into a bricks and mortar urgent care center if we can see them on their iPhones and, and that not, whatnot. So the only thing I worry about about all this as I think through the value of virtual visits is let's not forget about the vulnerable homeless people in our country who don't own iPhones and don't have access to tech. How do we take care of them if we shift to this telephonic or virtual platform? We gotta make sure that we're covering all the people who need healthcare, which you and I believe is everyone, by the way. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're on point there. One of the one of the questions about that is how will you get paid? In other words, and this is the the central question. What you're saying, and you and I agree, this is health 3.0. It's doing the right thing for the right patient at at their level of where they want to communicate. So for a homeless person, maybe it's a community health worker who goes out with a phone and beams it into a team of people that can deal with the neurologic issues, the substance abuse issues, the physical infectious issues, whatever it is, together quickly at that point right there. But how do we get paid for that in a system that pays us much more to see them in the emergency department uh, and and bill that you know 9925 whatever? I. As you know, I would much rather get paid to provide health care and provide wellness than to, get, than to you know, build widgets or, or do things to people. So that's a fundamental question. And I don't want us to miss the opportunity that this crisis presents us with. So maybe that's one of the dividends that comes out of this crisis, that we re-examine the way that we look at health care in this country and ask ourselves, What's really in the best interests of everyone, and how do we, how do we make everyone better in a pandemic, and also not lose all of our jobs in the same time? Well, so in um, speaking of speaking of that, so here's a question: Do we have too many administrators? Are we spending too much on management, and not enough on uh, integrative care? You know, time will tell. I, you know, I think we're going to have to all get a lot more lean in in what we do. So maybe we have. Um, you know, you know, how many more people do, you know, how many, remember when you would go look at a film and x-ray, there'd be x-ray text showing you films. So we don't have people like that anymore. So what are the other jobs that are obsolete now that we're in a much more refined and highly evolved healthcare system? I'm not really sure. I can't really give you the laundry list of who should go. Maybe it's me. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm not looking for a, uh, you know, job for life. I'm, I'm trying to fix the a broken healthcare system in the same way that you are. So I'm open to any suggestions around that. I'm sure there'll be some comments around that. Well, let me let me ask a question. So relating to that, um, and again, it's not about you know bashing administrators per se. It's more what right. is like you said. What is the lean approach? Like, I think we have too many specialists. We don't have enough primary care doctors. So I would actually argue that some of those specialty jobs um, are not necessarily something we need, but it's been incentivized because you get paid to do that more than you do to do primary care and actually uh, a sort of um, preventative-minded thing. Now, if hospitals had skin in the game with a community with primary care docs and it was integrated in a way that they actually got paid for prevention and a bundled payment for services that then included complications, and so they were really incentivized to improve quality, improve outcomes, improve, improve communication, 
and improve interdisciplinary care and doctors were maybe salaried so that that piece is off, but then you do need an incentive so that people aren't working, trying to work less. It's, it's much more complicated than it seems. I'm curious if you have any thoughts. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't even know where to start with all that. I, I, I think that, um, you know, we're going to have to re-engineer healthcare in a way that makes sense. You talk about not enough primary care doctors. Actually, if you're doing more virtual visits, you may have too many primary care doctors because you can be a lot more efficient with virtual or with the virtual visits. You could have one guy in Omaha, Nebraska, seeing patients all over the country rather than having them sort of geographically. Uh, um, spread out. I mean, I, I think it's going to change the um, calculus of how many primary care doctors we need when we figure out what they should actually be doing. Um, and maybe you need, as we've talked about, um, nurse more nurse practitioners, more physician assistants. Could you have them doing all the virtual visits as long as they're triaging them up and everyone's practicing at the top of their license? So that's another another way we can look at the distribution of jobs in healthcare 3.0. Mm. What, uh, you know, speaking of speaking of that, one of the interesting things to come out of this is we're realizing, oh, wait, hospitals have been able to share what their bed availability is. They have been able to open and, and uh, kind of connect more across platforms instead of these little walled silos that they're incentivized to be now. What's your thinking around data sharing in the post-COVID era? Because one of the biggest problems, and you know this, is somebody shows up at a Digni Health ER, you don't have access to the epic EHR that they were seeing at Stanford or whatever, and you end up reinventing the wheel. It costs a ton of money. You cause iatrogenesis and harm. I mean, do you see that changing because the incentives are just not aligned to do that? Dubin, that is the biggest problem. I mean, you know, you, the billions of dollars that were spent on EHRs with the hope of making everything so transparent and the information at your fingertips. And you're right, we've become so siloed. We're on Cerner. Um, you know, Stanford's on, on Epic. UCSF is on Epic. You know, how, you know, what's the health information exchange like between these organizations? And then what are the problems that we cause by having them siloed? Like you point out, you know, we, you know, we used to have people with um, coming into ERs, you know, wanting to get narcotics when they didn't have something that needed narcotics. Um, and they could literally go to every different hospital in a city as long as they weren't talking to each other and get narcotics at all of them. And, you know, so how do we, how do we as a system, as a culture, as a society, figure out how we're going to collectively solve health problems um, in the ways that are collaborative. I don't know how we do it in the current um, capitalistic system that we're in. You know, some people talk about a need for a more socialized approach. I don't know. That's kind of above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> well, but you and I agree philosophically, it does speak to the ideals of why you and I went into healthcare. We went into healthcare to solve these kind of problems, and they're not being solved right now. Well, you know, I always talk about the best days that I had as a hospitalist were the days when I didn't have to think about how is this paid for, who's going to follow up, uh, what's the, the, what are the dispo options from a social determinants of health standpoint. The days when those things were all firing on all cylinders and you had a team that was handling each part of it, those were the best days. And, and I had a resident to write the note. So that tells me documentation 
um, the bureaucratic red tape stuff, that's what's really harming us from a system standpoint as far as caregivers. So if we can actually figure out ways to start to, to fix that. Now, the data sharing thing, the EHR thing is central, man. And, and you know this, as a hospitalist, if I have to admit someone and I don't have those records, I have to go on a fishing expedition that takes time and money and causes harm. And people, I think the lay public doesn't really understand how harmful this is. If they did, they would be marching on Washington demanding that Epic and Cerner and McKesson and these guys all knock down the walls and have a, a, an integrated record, or they would overthrow the whole thing, vote for some single payer plan with a single EHR, and that would be it, because they'd be so outraged. I'm not saying those are the answers, but I'm saying the outrage really is missing. And if people realize it, they, they really would change their, their thinking on this. Well, you're right. The outrage isn't there because I don't think people know how badly it's broken. And the hospitalists and the ER physicians and those that work in the hospital can speak to this um, much better than, than, than I can. Um, and, you know, and, and yet, but I, I will say one thing that's really um, good that's happening right now is I think healthcare workers, people that are on the front lines taking care of this COVID pandemic that are putting themselves in harm's way are finally getting the recognition that they deserve. I mean, they are the heroes, the, you know, the physicians, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, you know, the environmental service workers, the people that are there day in and day out, you know, with, you know, wearing their hazmat suits and all their PPE. You know, we have had, as you know, you've talked about this, physicians and nurses and others have died in the line of taking care of these COVID patients. And I, you know, I just want to call that out right now I've never in my career seen a time when people doing their job in healthcare were putting their lives at risk the way they are now. And I think the public is aware of that. I do, I do believe that's true. Uh, I think the public's aware of that. I think, though, what the front line would say is, well, then where were you guys when we needed that protection and we're sort of thrown into the into the breach here, risking our lives? You know, there's a nurse at Hollywood Presbyterian who went and did CPR on a patient during a code because that's what she's trained to do, got a f basically fatal inoculum of uh, coronavirus and died 14 days later. And these frontline frontline professionals, you and I have talked about this, feel abandoned by leadership when right. leadership isn't transparent. So in other words, so, yeah, and so, we'll, let, let's talk about this because I think, I think the yeah. problem is the communication lines are so distorted that then they get called heroes and they get really pissed because they feel like, well, this is a placation. I, would, I don't want to be called a hero. I want to be safe at work and be able to do my job. So what do you think of this? That's an excellent point. You know, so... We have a number of, of, um, of chokes in the system. We have a number of, of things that are, we worth, look at daily to make sure we're doing them right. One is, do we have enough PP, enough personal protective equipment to make sure all of our caregivers are adequately protected and safe? Right now, we do, and we're happy about this. When this whole pandemic began, I was spending hours and hours of time trying to procure um, you know, N95 masks and gowns and face shields. These things, everybody was trying to get them all at once. These things were hard to come by. And there were people out there that were profiteering, um, trying to gouge us on the price to sell them to us. But this is one of the reasons we stopped doing elective surgery. We wanted to make sure we had enough PPE for the people that were taking care of the COVID patients. And that's why we said, let's stop doing surgery. We'll use all the gowns and gloves and masks that, for, that we would otherwise use 
for taking care of COVID patients. The transparency, I believe we, we uh, have been transparent about what we had and didn't have. Right now, um, we're, for instance, we're not willing to start doing elective surgery unless we have at least four days supply of PPE, which we do now have. And because we're a large company, we can actually um, stockpile or acquire um, stockpile is not a good word because it implies we're hoarding, hoarding but we yeah. have better purchasing power. So we're a more attractive to the manufacturers and the vendors so we can buy adequate amounts. We actually are partnering with the city and county of San Francisco because they were too small of a purchaser. So they're piggyback on us. So they're purchasing with us. We're all trying to do the same thing. And the federal government has made this difficult because they're also getting in the mix of things. And so they are, um, sequestering goods um, in ways that may not be necessary or may not be beneficial. So you have individuals that are not in healthcare making healthcare decisions about where the PPE is being resourced. So I don't mean to blame anybody else. We're doing the best we can at this. And um, you bring up a good case in point, Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital. That's a situation that never should have happened. Um, and it's very unfortunate to say the least. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the federal government sequestering stuff, and I've heard this from from uh, some leaders in various health systems that they have a big shipment coming in, and then the next thing you know, the federal government has diverted it. And what you said about these aren't clinicians necessarily. Uh, elaborate on that a little bit. So I, you know, I don't know who's making the decisions. We've been told that FEMA has um, has stopped our shipment of, for instance, COVID testing devices at the port and have reallocated them to another um, another source, another place. Um, so then now we're all of a sudden, you know, scattered into trying to find it. So a case in point was we opened up a COVID hospital in San Francisco at St. Francis Hospital at, in a partnership with UCSF and, um, and, uh, and San Francisco um, General Hospital. So we were going to cohort all the COVID patients there. Having just, having just done that, we were then told the lab testing equipment was being diverted and we had to scatter to get the right lab testing equipment. So it's mm -hmm. been a bit of a, um, of a kerfuffle to say the <laughs> least, trying to coordinate all these variables. Much of it is outside of our control. Um, having said that, you know, we've taken some huge financial losses and we're trying to do the right thing on a daily basis. So I'm not on a daily basis counting the number of dollars that we're losing on a daily basis. I'm looking in the future and saying, do I have enough PPE? Do I have enough lab testing equipment? Do I have enough nurses and doctors for what could be another surge coming next week or in two or three months? Right. And we actually, like you said, anyone who says they know what's happening is lying to you or trying to sell you something because we don't know. And that second surge could be big. Just the math on it says when you open up, you're going to get more patients. And that's not necessarily something that we need to, it's not necessarily something we need to obsess about avoiding because the process of avoiding it harms the economy so much that it has its own cost. So it's a weight that we have to, we have to weigh these things and balance them. And you're, you're on both sides of that too, because you have an organization you need to keep afloat and you're thinking about protecting front lines and you're thinking about protecting patients because all of that's within the mission, right? And yes, and there's been so much misinformation in the media that we have people that are doing things and assuming things and saying things that are so counter to what we know to be true that it's really frustrating. I mean, just this morning, um, I heard a newscaster say, we don't know what we should 
know about COVID. Well, that implies that, A, that there's some, somebody is out there keeping information from us uh, or, or producing wrong information, or there's some conspiracy. Everybody wants to go down the conspiracy rat hole. I you talked really about that quite conspiracy. a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I no. Mean, this is not G5, you know, Bill Gates. I don't see the connection there. You know, let's just deal with what we know, which quite honestly isn't very much. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, and people just can't be admit people. People won't admit that they don't that that this is something that is an unknown that there's some random act here and that we don't have sufficient information so they invent conspiracies to try to explain it and I think to some extent they've been burned by crappy government crappy leadership etc so they're willing to believe those things because they're not out of the realm of what's possible right, right. but but now now one thing you said with that so what do you think has been the main failure in this chain of events starting back in January that led us to where we are now? What do you think is, if you were going to say this is the top thing that I worried about that happened that, that I think put us in this position? Well, I, I think, okay, so I think we pretty quickly genomically sequenced the COVID virus. I think we pretty quickly um, knew um, what an antigen testing PCR uh, would look like. But the problem is we didn't bring this inside the country very quickly. I don't think we ramped up our abilities to test for and then distribute that quick enough. So we spent a lot of time chasing after people wondering if they had COVID or not, when we should have had a quicker uh, test so that we could have saved on PPE and taken the appropriate care of our patients better. So that's, that's one thing I think probably was a little bit wonky. I think, I think the other thing was there's been a lot of misinformation that's come <clears throat> out of the White House, mm. and mm. and um, you know what do we? Why do we need the President of the United States telling people they should be taking hydroxychloroquine when it hasn't been thoroughly tested and vetted as a therapeutic agent? Um, so there's been a lot of people that are running down various holes that are hoarding supplies and making decisions. It would be better if we had um, medical people uh, that were making these um, decisions with a more knowledgeable and um, thoughtful approach. Yeah, so I'm in agreement that I think we've seen a death of expertise here uh, and a dearth of leadership. So expertise as a thing has died in the United States. It's no longer respected. You know, I was surprised that Fauci got any respect at all, at least early on. Now the conspiracy guys are back saying, no, he's part of the problem. And so it, it, it's been a real problem, I think partially because the experts, the experts are only one slice of it and people aren't weighing the economic experts and the legal experts and the constitutional experts to say, okay, everybody has a seat at the table. What do the scientists say? What do the economists say? Instead of you have leaders basically saying, this is what we're going to do. And by the way, hydroxychloroquine, well, that is an incredibly damaging thing, especially when people actually need hydroxychloroquine for other things. And then there's hoarding and all of that. I mean, I had neighbors asking me for that drug after you know, the president said that it, 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 it's a really it's a really tough thing. And then you look at what's happening on the other side of the political aisle and it's being catastrophized. It, they, it's almost like you want they want the economy to fail so that Trump isn't reelected. So there's all this nuance and just polarization across the board. Right. And, and, and you and I have a bias and our bias is that human life is is something that should be sanctified. 
you know, that we should, at all costs, we should preserve human life. On the other hand, there's a lot of people that are feeling like the economy is more important. And the businesses that are going under are just as much a catastrophe. I tend to think that businesses can go under and then come back again. You can't do that with people. Once you've lost a life, it's over. So we tend to want to hold on to human life as much as possible and value what it is we can do to save human life. So I think that if we need to socially distance for a while longer, and maybe more businesses will go under, but maybe we, maybe new businesses will come up afterwards, will sprout up, maybe the right businesses will come up afterwards. You know, so yeah. um, I, I think there's a little bit of, a, of an imbalance, of, a, of a, a distortion of moral view here as to what's more important, the businesses or the human lives. And, you know, I think it's interesting because you are actually expressing the medical sector's moral bias. Because if you talk to the economic sector, what they'll say is for every 1% rise in unemployment, historically, there's been a 1% increase in suicide. So they might actually equate some economic uh, damage to human life damage. And then you talk about starvation worldwide that WHO is concerned about with the economic slowdown. But see, I think people are missing the bigger picture, which is, hey, you know, FYI, this is a global catastrophe, Todd, that we only see every, you know, 100 years or something. It may be more frequent now with, you know, things changing, but this is a global catastrophe. People will lose their lives. The economy will be harmed. So you have to make choices that reduce the most amount of harm for the most people. And I think weighing on the side of let's not have so many deaths from this potentially preventable thing. And the spreading of the curve means they may get infected later, but we might have better capacity to manage that. Um, so I have to think about this all the time too, when I'm talking on the show, like, where do I want to put, cause my moral matrix has gotten broader having to speak to so many different types of people. Where do I put my emphasis on this show? And is it going to actually be damaging if, if I say this? And I imagine as a leader of a health system, you're thinking the same way, right? It, what, how can I do the least harm possible to? Right. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's a tough balance. I mean, in the end, I have to be true to myself. And I truly believe that this crisis that we find ourselves in right now does pose an opportunity for us to reevaluate the way we function as a society and what our values should be and what businesses we should be in. And one of the things we've learned in this whole uh, uh, crisis is that we are interconnected. I mean, you know, we need to function together. We need to work together. This isn't something where, um, where uh, selfish behavior is going to bring about a solution to this. So looking at what the outcome is going to be, let's say a month from now, let's say we, let's say we get on the other side of this curve, this thing goes away. Well, a month now, we're going to see a lot more unemployment. We're going to see a lot of people who are going to lose their health insurance. We're going to see a lot more people that are on Medicaid. And we're going to see a lot more businesses going under and a lot more people uninsured. And so what does that mean for the future of healthcare? Now, I mean, we've been challenged in the past. How do we, how do we make ourselves profitable enough just to keep our doors open but you throw 20 percent unemployment at that i you know this is going to be a real challenge going forward so yes businesses are, are collapsing and healthcare as a business is going to struggle there are going to be a lot more questions that are going to be asked but i think there's an opportunity to answer them in a way which maybe is going to be just at the right time yeah, I th I'm with you. I'm an optimist. I think these problems are big, but they're going to lead to big solutions, which will be wh exactly what we need. It's almost like a stress test where it's like, okay, now's, now you don't have a choice 
to reform this thing, you have to do it. And, and I think that's important. One thing that really I find quite, quite heartbreaking about this whole thing is, as usual, it affects disproportionately the poor minorities, people with poor social determinants of health. You know, immigrant families, say, have bigger... Uh, families living at home in tight quarters tend to get infected in mass. There was a really sad story uh, in the news about a, uh, I think he was Peruvian, I forget, El Salvadorian uh, gentleman died of COVID. Family came to visit, say last respects to him. Almost everybody in that room got infected despite PPE. So we don't know what they were doing, whether there was a cultural thing where you have to hold his hand or whatever, we don't know. But the, the son who was only 23, quite obese, ended up dying only like a week or so later uh, after getting this. And again, it becomes this big disparity, an even wider disparity between people who have and people who don't. And this thing seems to affect the people who don't even more. Now we look at like our frontline staff, like our CNAs and those who are living on, you know, they're kind of on the edge to begin with. And, and now we're talking about an economic collapse that's gonna affect them. And it's just, it's tough to, it's tough to, it's tough to come to terms with the fact that the universe is not fair that way. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, so, you know, I, I agree with you. I think healthcare should be a right, not a privilege. And, and maybe we get closer to addressing that particular problem um, once we're on the other side of this pandemic. Um, that would be a good thing. Can I ask a dumb question? Is, is single payer better for you guys or worse for you guys as hospitals? be honest with you, and uh, I'm not sure what others would say in my position, but I think it would actually be better because we have an enormous amount of labor around what we call revenue cycle management, meaning sending out the bill, making sure the bill's right, getting the payment back, making sure everything matches up. If we had just a single payer, we would probably only need one-tenth of those number of people, so we would be more efficient. So there's a lot of businesses that are dedicated to trying to help us um, send out our bills that we wouldn't need to do if you know right now we have what you know hundreds of payers if we only had one payer I think it's a lot more simple yeah so from a pure logistic standpoint that overhead that goes into coordinating the money games with these various insurers and their different rules and trying to bill would all disappear under single payer and that's one of the that's one of the in my mind, the stronger points in favor of a single payer plan is the logistical issues around it. Um, and right. forget about it, the other stuff, because I've talked about single payer before, and I'm very ambivalent overall, because I worry, Todd, that we're going to codify and pay for things that don't work already. For example, well, those, exactly. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. that's the better question is make sure we're paying for the right things. Are we right. paying for good outcomes? Are we paying for uh, blood pressure management? Are we paying for um, hemoglobin A1C being where it should be. That's what we should be paying for rather than, you know, craniotomies that you could do, you know, intravascular percutaneous stuff on, you know, it's, yeah. it's that's much better. It, it's, um, it's, a it's a question of how do you pay for something? That's what everyone talks about. No, it, what are you paying for? That's what I think is what we, that's the conversation. Because obviously you get what you pay for, right? So if you pay right. for people to do things, guess they're what gonna they're do gonna things. do? Mm -hmm. Things. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and people, and this is my concern with Medicare, 
so if you call single payer Medicare for all, I think you're going down the wrong route. Medicare for all means more of a broken payment model, which first of all may underpay uh, clinicians, but more importantly is encouraging exactly the kind of fee-for-service nonsense that got us into this right. overtreatment mess in the first place. Uh, unless you're a proponent of Medicare Advantage, which is more of an HMO yes. kind of a thing. I think that's yes. probably uh, a better situation. Yeah, I'm with you. A Medicare Advantage for all would allow you with flexibility. And well, here's something. Okay, now now we're just going to go off the rails for one second. So because it's just fun to talk about this stuff. So imagine you had Medicare Advantage systems where private administrators of that are all competing, but they have one system. In other words, one billing process. So it doesn't create more logistic mess, but they're competing to create um, strategies that actually decrease costs, improve outcomes, and then compete for patients in terms of service and accessibility. And so what you can have is like, you can have a Medicare Advantage plan that say covers a turntable health style, primary care team-based thing with that partners with Dignity Health as their hospital, and everybody's integrated, so we're, we're incentivized to communicate interdisciplinary, including with EMS, including with long-term care. And it's all a de facto integration where we share technology and our skin's in the game because if we save money, we actually get to share some of that money. And if we improve outcomes, we keep those patients. I think that's amazing. It, it, it actually incorporates American competitiveness along with the egalitarian everybody's covered because government would have some mandate that everybody has to have one of these plans. I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, what you don't want to do is you don't want to set up perverse incentives. So you don't, you know, mm. an HMO, for instance, you're paying money and they make more money the less they do. So, right. so, you know, so for instance, Kaiser, the less procedures, the more healthy patients they can have, the more money they make. So they are incentivized to do less to you. So I, you know, I worry about that as much as I worry about the people get, get paid more to do more things to you. There needs to be much more of an outcome-based payment system, which I haven't seen a perfect version of yet. And what you describe is getting closer to it, but um, that's what you need. So there's no perverse incentives on either side. I think it's an interesting play if when you talk about AI to try to find an AI that that can be taught and learn what outcomes actually are good. So in other words, 73-year-old Hispanic gentleman with diabetes, what outcomes for that gentleman matter to the system as a whole in terms of cost, to him personally, hopes, dreams, and fears, what does he want out of life, and incorporate that into a model that then tells clinicians, hey, this is what this, this is the right thing to do, and if you do it, you get paid, and if you don't, you get paid less or you don't get paid. Right, well, and the, the one thing you're leaving out of that, I, I think that's beautiful, by the way, Zubin, but one thing you're leaving out of it is, you gotta, add, you know, every Hispanic male is not gonna be the same, so you gotta sit in front of him and say, what matters to you most? Because it might not be the same as the guy next to him. And it's going to be different. We as a culture have to embrace that not everyone wants to be on hemodialysis for 10 years and, and have all sorts of, you know, things done to them. So what, you know, how do we accommodate and how do we cater to people's individual sense of what they want for themselves on top of all that? Yeah. And that is the the shared decision-making that we need to be doing, right? And uh, I agree 100%. When I say 73-year-old Hispanic male, I don't mean the computer goes, oh, Hispanic, they <laughs> like family, you know, and starts stereotyping. It's more, uh, 
can the can the AI actually pull information from the clinical encounter that actually answers that question that's unique to that patient? And that's a narrative, right? So instead of our EHRs being click-based, they ought to be narrative story-based and the, and the AI should get smart enough to be able to understand stories. I mean, shit, sorry. If they, if they can you know, beat a Jeopardy player, that's natural human language. They can parse somebody's story and their hopes and dreams and fears, you know, at some point, if we put enough energy into it. So, but now, before I forget, I want to wrap this thing back and sort of wind up with what you started with, which is how are we going to open back up now? What's your process and what are you thinking about this? Yeah, so basically what what we're doing is we're looking at, do we have enough PPE? where we can start doing elective surgeries again. Do we, um, do we have the right screening system? Do we have the right, do we have enough testing? So everything's gonna change. So back to show you how old I am, when I was in first in medical school at LA County Hospital, every patient we drew their VDRL. Remember what a VDRL yeah. was? Yeah. It was a syphilis test. Well, you know, we don't, no, I mean, draw, not, we don't not, know those not, not that I, you know, drew a few on myself just in case, but I'm just saying, yes, VDRL. Well, now, every, every patient who comes in to have a colonoscopy is going to have to have a COVID test because we mm. need to know if they're COVID positive or not because we need to protect one another, protect ourselves, protect our caregivers. And so we, this requires a lot of COVID testing. And by the way, thank you for your... Um, session on COVID antibody testing, which as you pointed out, is completely, well, not completely worthless, but worthless in this setting. We just want to test to see if they have the virus. Yeah. Um, do they have the, the RNA virus? And so we're going to have to test everyone within three days of having an elective procedure. And if they're positive, we're going to have to have them go home and be quarantined for a while before they can come back and have the test. So we have to make sure we have capacity. Do we have enough room in the hospital? Should we have a surge? I'll tell you one thing right now, and you're not going to hear this from anybody else, but we're reopening up our hospitals for elective surgery as of, you know, yesterday and the day before and next Monday. But if we see another surge, all bets are off. We're closing back up again. So here's here's the dance that I'm proposing. Yes, we're going to open up, but we need to be able to pivot if the situation changes. We can't just stick to our to our um, our playlist here. We have to adapt to what's happening. So if we get a surge in the fall, guess what? We're going to slow things down again. We're going to stop elective surgeries and we have to. So this is a drill that I think we're going to have to learn how to do. Now, if you had unlimited PPE and stuff, then you wouldn't necessarily have to stop all elective surgeries because you would have enough to go around and you could test if we had unlimited testing, testing equipment. and enough beds in the hospital. Yes. Which we, which, you know, so all three of those things, yes, then we wouldn't necessarily have to stop. And there's also the other thing too is the labor. Do we have enough people, mm. enough caregivers where we could, you know, um, can, you know, take care of COVID patients at the same time do elective surgeries and, you know, and then make sure we're isolating patients from non COVID patients. Can I ask a question? So, from an operation standpoint, you get a ton of COVID patients. ICUs are full to 14, 30 days in the ICU. Now they need to go to a sniff in order to open up those beds. Are there enough sniff beds? Are those sniff beds safe for COVID? But what's going on with that? That's a great question. So, there's two things that we, do, well, a lot of things we don't have enough of, but there are two things that I worry the most about is that sniff skilled nursing facilities are not wanting to take COVID patients right now. We don't have enough skilled nursing facility patients for COVID patients to convalesce in. 
That's a huge problem. As a society, as a government, we're going to need to make an investment in sniff beds. That's one. The second thing is behavioral health. We didn't have enough behavioral health beds before. Mm. We have even fewer now because we can't have COVID positive patients in a behavioral health unit exposing other behavioral health patients. So we need to have behavioral health units where we can sequester patients and keep others from getting uh, infected. So this requires an even greater investment that we're going to have to make for those two populations, sort of the elderly and the behavioral health patients. We need to, you know, as a society, we are judged by how we deal with our most vulnerable people. And this is where they are. And we got to make sure we're taking care of them. You know, relating to that, speaking of vulnerable people and how we're judged, how are you going to think about dealing with the potential epidemic of PTSD and mental illness in um, overloaded frontline healthcare workers, nurses and ER docs and things like that? Has that been on your radar in terms of what you can do? It's, you know, resilience has always been on my radar is in, you know, we've had problems as you've um, talked about with moral injury, you know, and you have a great way of talking about that. We have, um, we're going to have that in spades after this. You know, there will be PTSD as a result of what caregivers have witnessed, what they've done, what they've taken care of. You know, um, it's, this has been devastating. This has been devastating to an entire, our entire workforce. Um, yes, I think we're going to need mental health professionals to help us manage through this. Um, I, I, I can't imagine. I think more people need to go into these fields so they can help us with this. Mm. What, you know, the, the only thing that I ever experienced close to this in my career was when I first went into practice, HIV had just come out. I never worried that I, would, that I was going to get it by taking care of an HIV patient. Well, I did sort of, maybe through a needle stick, but not this way. You know, we have more healthcare workers that are frightened about bringing this disease home to their families and to themselves. This is much, much more severe than anything we witnessed in the 80s and 90s. Mm. And do you think uh, in terms of destigmatization and in terms of time off for staff that need, because I had Wendy Dean on the show who kind of popularized this idea of moral injury, she's a psychiatrist, and she was talking about what leaders need to do is she had a list of things, and maybe you can respond to some of these. I'll just give you the list. So one is a a transparent and authentic interest in the well-being of their staff. So actually checking in with them and meaning it and listening. And the second thing was allowing that business as usual isn't going to spin up right away, that some people are going to need more time, they're going to need days to take off where they're feeling overwhelmed and and to allow that. Um, And uh, uh, I I think those are are the top two that I think I'd love you to respond to. Oh, it's, it's absolutely correct. That's exactly what we need to do. You know, leadership, you know, being a good leader means that you actually care about the people that are working in your organization and you, you can't fake it. You have to actually uh, walk the talk. Um, absolutely. You know, in the, before COVID, when I would have, uh, when we would have a patient harmed and a patient would, would die or be injured, one of the first questions I always asked was, you know, once this had already happened was, is the caregiver okay? Because you and I know that there's a ripple effect whenever patients are harmed of the caregivers and their families and the secondhand stress and everyone down, down the road. So are we looking after them? Are we taking care of them? Are we making sure they have the resources they need 
to um, patch themselves back together again, to feel whole again. So, you know, what can we do for our employees to really make sure that they are taking care of themselves in the face of these really reprehensible, terrible circumstances? I, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm. Well, and so I, 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 I hope that we're doing that. I, I, I know we're not doing it as well as we should. We need to do better. And I think that your words ring true to me. So, you know, I think it's important, too, to kind of wrap up on this note that the administrative clinician divide in the beginning of this particularly had never felt more acute than it did in the early days of this, especially when people were fear-driven. Um, there wasn't the time or the inclination or the training that where people would communicate openly with each other. And instead of, you know, a COO coming out and saying, listen, we're here are all the roadblocks we're fe facing, trying to get you the PPE that we know you need. Um, we're doing the best we can. I know it's not perfect. Here's what we're trying to do. Tell us if you have ideas. And from the other end saying, hey, how can we help support leadership to help get the tools we need. What can we do as well? There, wa there wasn't that. And I think it highlighted longstanding stress between leadership and non-leadership. And I've talked about, and you and I did a previous show on the importance of clinical leadership, why someone who comes from that tribe. Now, even then, Todd, people will say, well, but yeah, but you sold out, you went to the dark side, you, you don't touch patients anymore, whatever it is, there's a million reasons that we will snipe at our own who try to lead. Do you have sort of parting words of how we can reconcile these forces? Because I think that reconciliation will be important if our goals are the same, which is care for yeah. patients, care for each other. I, I mean, I try not to judge people by their titles. I try to judge them by who they are and what they do and whether they have integrity or not. So I, it's easy for, for people to say, I hate all administrators or I hate all whatever the title is. But honestly, you know, we're trying to do the best job we can. And as I've said before, um, I think there's value in having been a clinician when you become an administrator because you're able to make more informed decisions with more actual knowledge of what it takes to, to do these jobs. And so you're more likely to be uh, focused in on the right things. So when I meet with physicians, I've walked in their shoes and, I, and therefore I can be a little more thoughtful and hopefully a little bit more wise about taking their words in and processing them in a way which is uh, demonstrates high integrity, thoughtfulness, and all the rest. So, you know, I, I, will, I won't defend my entire um, job cohort, but I, will def but I will say that as a human being, I'm striving to do the right thing regardless of my title. And I hope people will see beyond the titles and try to understand that we're, we care about human life, we care about one another, and the only way we're gonna get through this is working with one another in a collaborative collegial fashion. Yeah, I think that's a good way to wrap this up. Todd Strumwasser, man, thanks again for coming on the show, and I know it's been crazy. Thank you, Thank you yeah. very much for your time. Really. I appreciate it. I look, look forward to talking again in the future on the other side of this, maybe. Oh, a thousand percent. And hopefully in person, since we're both in the yay, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so ZPAC, so uh, thanks again. Uh, I hope you gave this show a chance and didn't just turn it off in the beginning going, oh, he's talking to someone in leadership. Because if you gave it a chance and you got to this point, I hope you learned as much as I did from this conversation and it was valuable to you. So please leave a comment, share the show.
Subscribe on whatever platform. Uh, I love you guys. Stay safe. And we out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.